You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, Todd and the worship team. Um, hey, good morning. I add my welcome to Todd's welcome. It's so great to see you this morning. I mean, Happy New Year. Um, so open your Bibles. First Peter, that's where we're going to be. Um, so I got to tell you a little, I got to confess something to you. Um, it's probably not good to start a sermon with a confession, but the First Peter, we're going to be in this little book. And so it originally outlined it for 10 weeks, okay? And, um, but here's the reality of it. Uh, it's going to be longer than 10 weeks. And uh, part of that is because I was supposed to do 12 verses this morning, and we're going to do two, all right? So I don't know that that necessarily determines the pace, but it'll be longer than 10 weeks, and I'm really sorry about that. One, one point of clarification is you're turning there. So Brent was announcing the congregational vote, kind of a cold business meeting uh, in two weeks. Um, so it... The, the morning, the business mornings uh, opens up at the downtown campus at 9 o'clock, well, downtown and White House, um, but you don't have to go down there to vote. So we'll vote at all of the campuses. We're just letting you know the business meetings from 9 a.m. Uh, to uh, 12.30 uh, p.m. So that's that clarification. You can, you can do that right here. Uh, you can vote on that. All right. So... First Peter, we're beginning this series. Let me tell you a couple things about it, and then... Um, so, so a hundred in five verses. That, that's all that it is. 105 verses. You can read this short letter. Five chapters, 105 verses. You can read this short chapter in 20 minutes. Okay? Maybe some of you 25 minutes. And, and here, but here's what I want you to do. So to, later today, you go home this afternoon and say, okay, I'm looking for something to read before I turn um, Netflix on and check my brain out for the rest of the day to open First Peter. Five short chapters, and, and I want you to read it because what you'll find is, is that as you read First Peter, you'll be like, well, I didn't know all this was here. This is like incredibly relevant. This is like real life stuff, and that's exactly the point. That's why we're going to be in First Peter over the next 10 plus weeks together, okay? So, so read it because I want you to be familiar with it because he's, he's going to have some themes that recur over and over again, and I want you to be attuned to to that. Well, I'll begin this way. In 2008, we um, took a family vacation. It's probably our most fav one of our most favorite family vacations that we ever took. 2008, went to Washington, D.C. And uh, so really just took the two older kids. Um, my youngest uh, still kind of hangs it over our head uh, that she didn't get to go, but we'll take her when the others are gone and uh, stay in a nicer place. But anyways, so we got there on a Sunday, and it was me and Leslie and Maggie and Jay, and uh, we got there, we arrived at the bed and breakfast, we checked our stuff into the bed and breakfast, like, okay, it's Sunday, let's like redeem the time. So we threw our bags into the room, went down to the lady at the front and said, hey, so we want to get down to where the stuff is. We were staying kind of up away from everything, but public transportation, no big deal. So she says, okay, here's what you do. You go out, you walk two blocks, and there's a bus station. And then at that bus station, you wait on a certain color of bus, and it'll take you right down to the mall, right where you want to be, the, 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 you know, the, where the memorials are and the 
um, the Lincoln Memorial. And the, I mean, so we saw all the stuff. We took all the pictures and got lemonade and, and took more pictures. And it was, I mean, it was great. And then it started raining. But, but I don't mean just raining. I mean, it started to downpour rain. So my first instinct as a father is, okay, we got to find shelter. So find shelter, figure out how to get back to the bed and breakfast that we were staying in. Here's the problem in Washington, D.C. There's no place to get out of the rain. You, there's not even a tiny little overhang on any building, probably some national security thing. But if it's raining and you don't have an umbrella, you're getting rained on. And so I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but it's like raining so hard and my wife is wet and my children are wet and I'm soaking wet and my children are complaining a little and, you know, and I can't think. I mean, it's, I, I cannot get my bearings. I don't know how the public transit system works there. I mean, I grew up in West Texas. I live in Tyler. Um, and so I was trying to figure it out, and I'm standing in front of this bus stop trying to make sense. I can't even remember where I had come from. And, you know, we'd see a bus, we'd run over to the state, and it was the wrong bus going the wrong way. And so finally, finally, after it was all said and done, we, we got on a bus that was going to take us to where we wanted to go. We sat on a bus. I mean, we were just soaking. It's so easy to tell. We were not from Washington, D.C., Okay. We were strangers there in the midst of this, what felt like in the moment, terrible crisis. And I don't know if you ever had this, this is a moment of despair kind of washes over you. You say, I don't, I don't know what to do. Well, the reality is, is a little bit of rain is not that big a deal. I mean, it just, it just isn't. It came, it went. In fact, we have fun talking about it now. But we all know the feeling. You know, when you're, when you're stuck in the rain, and maybe the rain is a diagnosis. Maybe it's being let go from a job. Maybe sometimes it's the financial anxiety of not knowing how you're going to make the ends meet. Maybe it's a, a break in a relationship or the loss of a, of a loved one. And in those times, the, the rain... It feels more like fire, doesn't it? And, and it just keeps getting turned up and the, and the pressures or the sadness or the suffering or the calamity seem to be pressing in on you. You say, I don't know how to get out of this. And let me say this. It, in a room this size, there are people this morning, I know you're feeling crushed today. And so, this is why I want to look at First Peter. Because here's the question. In the minute, in the moments, in the seasons that we're feeling crushed, here's the question. Is, is our theology, is the, are the things that we believe about Jesus, are the, are the truths that we hold to in Christianity, are they enough to get me through? Are they enough to weather this storm? Are they, are they enough to walk through this furnace in my real life every day? Or man, is this just something I'm showing up on Sundays and doing because it's a great place for my kids to hang out or it's a great place to see people or it's a great escape from the world I'm living in? And that's the question. And let me just tell you from the outset, if our theology 
And the things that we believe about Jesus don't hold up in those things. Then, then, then what are we doing? What are we doing? So, so Peter's going to address this. He's, he's going to be talking to some people that are suffering tremendously. Some of them have lost family members to persecutions. Some of them have experienced this sort of hostile devastation. I mean, so, so authorities or other people have come in and just taken what's theirs, kicked them out of their homes, or they've been kicked out of their cities that, where they have lived for generations. They find themselves separated from their families. And all of this is because of the name of Jesus in their life. In fact, I would say that Peter is writing to people who are experiencing suffering to a degree that really none of us in this room knows. But at the same time, circumstances that are crushing are crushing nonetheless. And is our theology, is what we believe, going to hold true in the midst of real life? So, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the first nine verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to come back and talk about the first two verses. But I want you to get a, a sense, I want you to get a flavor of Peter in this writing. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, here it goes. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, can be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's the word of the Lord. May God bless our study of it this morning. Well, I wanted us to come back. We're going to look at the first two verses, but I wanted you to see the context. I wanted you to see what he's aiming at. I don't know if you heard it in verse 8 where he says that you, you haven't seen him, but you love him. You don't see him now, but you believe in him. And then it says, 
and, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. See, Peter wants them to know that what they believe intellectually can be radically experienced in their everyday life. It's, it's the real life goal that Peter's aiming at. And he wants them to know that look, suffering doesn't keep you from experiencing that reality. In fact, what Peter's going to argue is that suffering, it's actually a grace. It's a grace because what, what suffering does is it unleashes in you a hope for eternity. So your temporary suffering, if you know who you are and know whose you are, can unleash and unlock a hope in eternal realities. So you can come through the fire. You can be charred cinder, or you can come out as pure gold. That's what Peter's saying. It's like one writer, he says it this way. He says, Peter takes suffering people and he blows them beyond the walls of their suffering. He gives them a vision of something that's greater than the things they're going through. He, he gives them literally a vision, a calling for every aspect of their lives. And in that, there's hope. This suffering has, has the ability, by God's grace, to bring about in you a, a hope and a faith that you didn't know that you had. So here's how he starts out. Verse 1 is Peter, he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's the author, and then he's writing to what he calls elect exiles of the dispersion. And therein, these five places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, this is all uh, modern-day Turkey. So if you looked on a map, you looked at Turkey, that's who he's writing to. And Peter, he's one of the most fascinating characters in the New Testament. When you read the Gospels, you meet a Peter who's brave and manly and courageous and a chop your ear off kind of guy, right? I mean, if that's what he was aiming at. If, it, if not, he's a lousy shot. But he, his story's also tragic, isn't it? I mean, he's the guy. So, he, man, he, he pledges his loyalty to Jesus. Man, if everybody else leaves you, I'm your man. I'm with you. I'm going to the death with you. And then yet, in the moment of testing, he's the one that denied Jesus. He, he blew it. And then... Then you see him kind of washed up at the end of John's gospel, the last chapter of the gospels. Discouraged, defeated, he goes fishing and Jesus comes and finds him and restores him and loves him. Gives him hope again. And then you open up the book of Acts and you, you see the beginning of the church and, and, and it's being catalyzed by this man. Peter, he's front and center. The Holy Spirit's come on him and God is using Peter as the catalyst for launching the church. And he's a dynamic preacher and he's a great leader and he's leading the way. He's the anchor of the early church. And in Acts 10, Peter is taken out of his comfort zone by Jesus, always taken out of his comfort zone. And he has to go and he, and he gives the gospel. The first time anybody gives the gospel to a Gentile there, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, 
And then what's interesting is you don't hear much from Peter after that. In Acts chapter 12, Peter kind of fades out of the picture, and, and that's when Paul rises to the picture and the missionary journeys begin. And, and yet I always wonder, well, wonder what happened to Peter. Well, I mean, what's he doing? And I'll tell you, I think what Peter's doing is he's being faithful. He's just a faithful leader. He's leading in Jerusalem. He's an emissary to the, to the growing churches. And then we open up this letter from Peter. And he's an old man at this point. See, the, um, the church uh, was going through a time where a Roman emperor named Nero uh, was setting his face against Christians. And so to be a Christian was was hazardous. To, to be a Christian was dangerous. To be a Christian was illegal. And so there's this persecution that begins and, 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 we're, and we're struck. Listen, so Peter's writing in this time of persecution. You expect Peter, you expect to open it up. Peter's going to wield a sword and say, okay, listen, it's time to take up arms. It's time to cut off some ears. But you see a man, he's seasoned. He's, he's humbled. He's pastoral. He's he is a deep theological thinker. And this man loves Jesus. So the exiles he's writing to, they were Gentile believers who were suffering under this government-sanctioned persecution. Part of the real tragedy begins in um, the year 64 AD. The rumor of the time was that Nero, who was the emperor, while he was away from Rome, ordered some people to set Rome on fire. And so that doesn't play well if you're the emperor, if you've set your city on fire. So he comes back, and what he does to try to shake the rumors is he turns and he says, no, I, the Christians are the ones that did it. He publicly indicts them, and then he starts to publicly persecute them. Tacitus, who's a first century historian, he writes about this Christian execution. He says this, Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when the daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show as a circus while he mingled with people in the dress of a charioteer, stood aloof off to the side. Hence, even the criminals, the ones who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, in them arose a feeling of compassion. For it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one's man, one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. It's the kind of persecution they were under. A.D. 64, while this took place in July, this scene. A.D. 64, many historians believe the year Paul was executed in Rome too. Listen, the church is struggling. I mean, they're trying to figure out, well, wait a minute. I mean, this is Christianity. 
our, our, our leader, Paul, the one that planted all these churches, our theologian, our rock, our stability, man, he's been executed by Nero, the Roman government's after us. And it's only a short while before all of that treachery finds its full force where we are in this Asia Minor Turkey area. I mean, what's the future of Christianity? What's the future of this church? It all seemed very insecure. It all seemed very unstable. It all seemed very unsafe. But Peter's writing to a people because he wants them to know that, listen, Rome or Nero or the government or sickness or your sin, nothing can separate you from the everlasting and ever-loving Jesus. He wants them to know no matter what the circumstances you feel, you've never been more secure. Ever. He wants the theological truths of the readers to be radically experienced in their lives. So he, he calls them, he, he defines them. He says, hey, this is who you are. This is what you feel like, but this is who you are. You're, you're elect exiles of the dispersion. By the way he's addressing them, it might be that he's sensing they feel like, we feel like we're lost here. I mean, he's, he's talking to a people that are believers in Jesus and they've never seen him. And it's likely they've heard the news of the Apostle Paul, the, their teacher, their pastor at large, he's just been killed. And so Peter's putting words to what they feel, elect exiles of the dispersion. He's saying to them that they're, listen, you're sojourners, you're, you're foreigners in this world. Use Paul's language. You're, you're citizens of another world. You're heavenly citizens. And because of that, here's the reality. There's a discomfort, there's a homesickness, there's suffering, all of those things that come along with living as strangers in the land. See, this is what it was like for a Christian in the first century. They didn't have centuries of tradition. I mean, most of them had been Christian for a few years, maybe, maybe a decade. I mean, they didn't have a history of tradition. There was no shepherd's guide. There was no radio stations or bookstores. And, I mean, they weren't assimilated into the community in any way. I mean, they truly were strangers in a foreign land. They had an allegiance to a homeland in which they did not live. Well, how does that relate to us? So, 2,000 years of history and a sophisticated infrastructure in place called the church. I mean, we have Christians who hold public office. We have Christians who are CEOs. We have Christians who teach in the classroom. Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, I mean, like it or not, is still an hour of worship in this country. So, so in what sense... If any, are we strangers in a foreign land? Well, I think Peter's text is relevant for us today in the 21st century. Well, what does it mean? So let me, let me try to flesh it out for a second. I mean, so if you're a, if you're a businessman and you've decided that as a Christian, you're, you're not, you're not going to cheat or lie or, or double cross. And, I mean, you're going to deliver what you, you promise you're a stranger in this world. So if you're a husband and you've decided to be faithful to your wife, you, 
you're a stranger in this world. If, you, if you're a Christian and you're a teenager or you're a college student and you decide, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to run in the direction that everybody else is running. I'm going to do some things differently. You're, you're a stranger in this world. In that sense, what I mean is, is that in your life, in your day, you walk out of step with the world around you. You, you find yourself in a situation where you're in a foreign land. In, in the sense that you're out of step with the world around you, you have three choices, and here's what they are. One is that you can assimilate, kind of lose your identity or your distinction altogether. I'm, we, we used to, the church used to say things. I, I don't know that I've ever said it. If I have, good, it's good for me, I'm glad I did. But um, you, you ever hear the saying, you're, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? You, you ever heard that? Anybody, anybody say that? <laughs> um, I don't know that that's the case for very many people I know. I think it's more like, you know, I think we're so earthly-minded, we're not any heavenly good. I mean, we're the masters of assimilation. In fact, if you wanted to, you'd come to my bookshelf, and there are books all about how the church can fit into the world. We just remind everybody, we're, no, we're just like you. We're not any different. Could you come on? Which seems so strange to me. I mean, I have this feeling. People drive up to visit a church. You drive into the park. You expect the gathering of, of these people called the church to be different than everything else in the world. So you can assimilate. I don't need to tell you how to do that. You, you can isolate. Which means I'm just going just to jettison this whole thing anyway. We're not going to be around. We're going to live so out of step that we don't even have to cross paths with anybody. I don't think that's what we're called to do either. Or you, you can embrace that as a believer in this world, you are different. See, Peter, he's encouraging them. So you have a faith... You have a precious faith, and it's powerful enough to produce in you. So he's going to say, it's going to produce a hope in the midst of trials. It's going to produce a holiness in the midst of temptation. It's going to produce a humility in the midst of things that are uncertain. It, it, it's going to be a faith. I mean, you, you have a faith and a hope that transforms you. It, it, it's going to turn what you believe into who you are. Faith acts on the content of what we believe and produces a conduct that causes the world to know a foreign status. But here's the thing, and, and, and I mean this. The reality of the Christian life for so many people lies dormant in the midst of the comforts that you've surrounded yourself. 
the reality of the Christian life and all that it means. He, Paul, Peter is about to go to the heights for us in the next verse. And that will lie dormant in your life so long as you have surrounded yourself with the comforts of the world. See, here's, here's the thing. Unless we see ourselves, unless we operate, unless we embrace the fact that we are elect exiles of the dispersion, we won't embody Christianity. See, we want to live in two worlds. See, here's what we want. We want a faith enough to get us into the next life. But we want resources and security enough for this life. So, so we're counting on what we cannot see for the next life. Out of sight, out of mind. And we are pursuing what we can see for this life. And what Peter's going to say is, no, 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 here's how it works. We count on what we cannot see for this life. That's faith. I mean, if you want to know joy, I mean, if you want to know, if you want to radically experience in your life what it is that you believe intellectually, that's what Peter's going to say. The degree to which you are in step with the world around you, that's your doing. The degree to which you are out of step with the world around you, that's God's doing. And I want to show you this. Look at verse 2. Now, now verse 2, let me just say this about verse 2. I, I am about to totally geek out on you, Okay? And I'm sorry about that. Don't check out. Uh, just watch. Observe it. Like, like wildlife. You know I mean? So, <laughs> verse 2. So, it is maybe the most tightly packed verse in all the Bible. I mean, I can't... People write thousand-page theologies unpacking what Peter does in three prepositional phrases, okay? So it's a few things I want you to know about it, and then we're going to get into it, and then we'll see what kind of trouble we get in here, all right? So three prepositional phrases, and they all describe what it means to be an elect exile, okay? So you're an elect exile. Um, your identity as a believer is that an elect exile. Now, here is how you are who you are. This is what Peter's going to say. You want to know how you are who you are? Verse 2, three prepositional phrases. This is how this happens to you. Each of the prepositional phrases is going to speak about the activity of God, the triune God. One prepositional phrase, the activity of God the Father. The next one, activity of God the Holy Spirit. The next one, activity of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Peter's going to give us this glimpse into the glory of our salvation. In other words, you might say it this way. He's, he's going to remind them, he wants to ground them in this reality, how you're saved. How did you come to faith in Jesus? What, what's the basis of your identity as a believer? Because here's the thing. When it all presses in on you, 
Well, when it comes in and it, and it packs in on you, that's the first thing that you're going to... So well, who am I? I mean, who, who is God? Who am I? Has he forgotten about me? And so Peter wants to begin right here. So here's, here's what he said. Here's the first prepositional phrase. Elect exile. You can add that to the beginning of each of these phrases. Elect exile according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I got two more prepositional phrases after that, so don't leave on me right here, okay? The, the word foreknowledge is this word prognosis in the Greek, and the idea is not only that God knew in advance, that he knew in advance that there'd be a chosen people, but more specifically, he purposed in advance to bring them into being. If you've got your Bibles open, in chapter 1, go down to verse 20. I want to show you how Peter uses this word in another place. In verse 20, it says, He, this is Jesus, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or visible in the last times for the sake of you. So, Come back to verse 2. What he's saying is, is when he speaks of Christ as being foreknown or being chosen, God did not only foresee that he would send Christ, he foreplanned that he would send Christ. He foreordained that he would. He forepurposed that he would. It is the purposeful plan of God. And it's in this purposeful plan of God that's larger than an individual's life. It forms the ultimate foundation of the hope and the encouragement that Peter's going to offer. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here's what Peter's saying. You, you didn't take the initiative here. You know who took the initiative? God took the initiative. He went after you. He draw, drew you into an intimate and loving and redemptive relationship with Him. And because of that, as the Father claims ultimate supremacy in your life. So some Christians say, so here's the other side of it. Some will say, no, here, here's how I understand it. God chose those that he knew would choose him. There's two problems with that. One, the Bible says no one seeks God. No one looks for God. No one desires God. No one chooses God. God doesn't choose those that will choose him. If that's the case, man is sovereign in that choice. God chooses those who would never choose Him. God chooses the unloving, the sinner, the wicked, not just the undeserving, but the ill-deserving. I mean, if God didn't elect us and predestine us and choose us, we wouldn't know Him. He loved us first. He chose us first. We don't 
choose God first. He chooses us. We don't pursue him first. He pursued us. We're lost. He's not lost. He's the one that's on the rescue mission to save his enemies, which we are by sin. So I love this doctrine of election. So God, you know what it tells me? God loved me before the foundations of time. He knew me. Jeremiah tells Jeremiah, I, before you were, I, I knew you before. And I'm, and I'm not good, but I'm loved. I'm, I'm not deserving, but I'm loved. The nothing to merit it. But I'm loved. Charles Spurgeon was talking about election. He said, man, I love election. I love the thought that I was chosen before the foundations of the world because if I was chosen after I was born, I'd have never been chosen. I've done nothing. He's done it all. It's the first thing he's going to tell you about what it means to be an elect exile. Not just elect, but an exile as well. According to the foreknowledge. So the second one, elect exile in the sanctification of the Spirit. Oh, man. I'm going to get through this. We've got four minutes. We'll get through it all, right? So not only does God foreknow whom he's going to elect, but the Spirit is the source or the means of their sanctification. So the term sanctification, it can work a couple different ways in the New Testament. One way it works is like this progressive holiness. You, you're growing in holiness. You, you're, you're progressing. You're becoming more of who you are in Christ. That is one way the New Testament talks about it. But another way is sanctification at its bare bones really means consecration, set apart. You have been taken from one realm and put in another realm. You've been taken from your death and put into life. And that happened by the Holy Spirit. When believers are converted, they become God's holy and set-apart people. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 combines this nicely. Here's what it says. From the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying or consecrating work of the Holy Spirit. One writer says it this way. The Spirit, He is a power from beyond this world. Through Him, God, or the exalted Christ, takes hold of a person from the inside by addressing that one in a convincing way. Whoever's taken hold of by the Spirit is thus taken from the realm of the profane and placed into the sphere of the holy. So you see this? This is what God the Father does. He knew you. He foreloved you. He forepurposed you before the foundations of time. And then in time, the Spirit worked on you, brought you, ignited faith in you consecrated you. Now, I want you to see this third one. Elect exile. For the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. So, you read every commentary you pick up, here's what they're going to say. The most difficult phrase 
to interpret in the whole book, whole letter. So here we go. What does the phrase mean? What does for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood mean? So what's it referring to? Now here's, here's what I want to say. So, so please hear me. While it may seem that it's referring to our obedience to God and then having our sins washed away, it's actually referring to something completely different, something outside of us. Of course, listen, because we're saved, should we live lives of obedience? Absolutely yes. Is there assurance that we can have our sins washed away? Absolutely yes. Listen, we believe here at Bethel, we believe what the Bible says. We are to live holy lives. We've been forgiven and cleansed from every sin. But I don't think that's what this passage is saying. There's plenty of passages that say that. I don't think that's what this one's saying. I think this passage is telling us, like the first phrase and the second phrase, the third phrase is telling us the activity of God. The Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies, and the, and, the, and the phrase works exactly the same, but there's this little bitty preposition called ice, okay? So here it is. We're going to nerd for a second. There's a preposition called ice. It can have a couple of different meanings. It can have a purpose for the purpose of meaning, or it can have a cause. This caused it meaning. And I'm going to tell you, I think that the way this works, the way these three prepositions work, what Peter's pointing to is the cause so, so let me say it this way. Because of the obedience of Jesus Christ and because of the sprinkling of His blood. Theologians talk about it this way. Active obedience, which is His perfect righteousness. And His passive obedience, which is His sacrificial and substitutionary death. And listen, you've got to have both of those. You have to have the perfect righteousness of Christ laid upon you so that when God looks at you, He sees His Son, Jesus, and He's, you, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's you. And He takes all your sin and dies the death. And you're sprinkled with His blood and you're cleansed from your sin and you're given His perfect Righteousness. It is the obedience, because of the obedience and the sprinkling of the blood. And the whole scene takes us back to Exodus chapter 24 and Israel standing there before the Lord and they're about to have a covenant. And they, Moses reads the book and they say, well, we'll do it. We're going to do everything you said. In fact, they say it twice. We're going to do it all. He sprinkles the blood and the rest of the Old Testament is how the, they could never do it. Our hope is never in our obedience. Our hope is never in our obedience. It's the obedience of Jesus. And that's the new covenant. Ezekiel says, I will cause you to walk in my ways. Because my son has done it. Well, here's three things, and I have, I'll, I'll conclude. What God says about us matters more than what the world says about us. Our salvation rests on God's choice 
And God has done it all. We don't add anything to it. And we're not just accepted by God. We're chosen by Him. We're loved by Him. And even if, even if things seem to press in on us, and the burden seems so, can't bear this. You have never been more secure. Ever. Well, the question is, you know, did it work? Did it take? Peter writes this letter. Did it, did it have any effect on this area? These, these five provinces. I'll close with this story. Fifty years after Peter wrote this letter, there's a man named Pliny, and he's the governor of Bithynia, one of those five places. And Pliny is writing to Trajan, who's the emperor at the time. And he's got this problem with these Christians. These Christians are, um, the, the way he writes it is, listen, they're, they, they've beca- they're infecting everything. They've infected the city. They've infected the suburbs. They've, they've infected the rural areas. And he relates to Trajan a story. He says, and I don't know what to do about it. He says, this, I brought one Christian before me and I threatened him. I'm going to banish you, he said. And the Christian replied, you, you cannot. For all the world is my father's house. Then I will slay you said the governor. You cannot. For my life is hid with Christ in God. Then I will take away all your possessions. You cannot. For my treasure is in heaven. He says, then I will drive you from man and you shall have no friend left. Looks at him and calmly replies, you cannot. I have an unseen friend from whom you will never be able to separate me. And then 50 years after that, these men go into a man named Polycarp's house in in the Asia area, just around the corner. They drag him out because he's infected all of the people. And say, go to Polycarp. He's an old man. They drag him out. They rough him up. They say to him, hey, listen, you can save your life here, Polycarp. All you have to do is swear by the majesty of Caesar. Change your mind and curse Christ. And as the crowd silenced, Polycarp said, 86 years have I served him. He's done me no wrong. Why would I blaspheme the king? Who saved me. So they bring the wood and they pile it up around him. And they tie him to a post. And they're going to burn him alive. And as they set the fire, he prays this, For this cause and for all things, I praise thee, I bless thee, O everlasting Father and glorious Son Jesus, by the power of thy Holy Spirit be glory now and for the ages to come. Amen. I tell you, that's what Peter's talking about. Things you believe, 
being radically experienced in your everyday life because of who you are and what God has done. If you would, would you bow with me? And Father, we... Uh, as believers, our identity is because of everything you've done and we could spend the rest of our lives, we will spend the rest of our lives trying to comprehend what it is that you loved us before the foundations of time, that you have sanctified us and consecrated us by your Spirit. Father, you've counted the obedience of Christ to our credit. You have washed us clean by the shedding of his blood. And then, Father, maybe we, although we'll, we'll always be strangers in this world, we, we are always, will remain your elect. Father, for anyone in here this morning that has not come to the place of hearing the call, of hearing hearing the gospel, hearing the good news of your son Jesus, I pray your spirit this morning would, would consecrate them, ignite in them a faith to take hold of your son Jesus and in a moment, this moment, be saved. Father, we ask this the only way we can in the name of your son and by the power of your spirit. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.